Good morning, and uh, Merry Christmas to everyone. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. For those who don't know, I know most of you do, but I'm John. I'm Pastor Harris's eldest son, and I've been away for the last four years pursuing higher education and recently moved back to renovate our home and be with our families and also attend this church. And one of the things um, I've realized after living in different places over the last few years is that Grace Bible is actually a very unique and extraordinary place. And it's something growing up I think I took for granted. I thought this is just normal life, but it's really not. And it's good to be frequently reminded, I think, of that, the extraordinary blessings that God bestows on us because we have a tendency to forget those things, to take them for granted. It's in our nature to do that with things that we're familiar with. So let me say a few things about this church before we examine the passage under consideration. First, we are blessed here at Grace Bible Church to enjoy accurate and uncompromising preaching and teaching. And this is a very rare quality, especially in the day and age where most pastors are more concerned with their own reputations than the precious souls under their watchful care. And I've seen this firsthand. We are also blessed to be part of the bond of believers who love each other. Loving each other is, is something that it, it's not everywhere. I thought that was just the way that every church behaved and all Christians should behave that way, but that's not always the case. And we do love each other here as expressed through the ministry and the fellowship that we enjoy being in each other's company, um, using our spiritual gifts. Not every church has the high percentage of people that attend using their spiritual gifts on a weekly basis and involving uh, themselves and each other in their own lives. And, and one other thing, I, I didn't note this, but as I'm thinking about it, also a church that's uh, not willing to sacrifice the truth when it even comes to shutting the church down. We still want to meet, and it's because of those two things, because we, we love each other. We, want, we, need, we see it as necessary to be together, just like a family needs to be together. And we, we know that uh, Jesus Christ has uh, commanded the gospel to go forward, and the church is the way that that takes place. Yet strewn across this country are numerous examples of churches once strong in doctrine and practice, and now, for those who watch the Christmas Carol over the week, they're, they're deader than Jacob Marley's corpse. You walk in, and there's no life. Um, I don't know, some of you might have been in some of those churches. And I do not state this fact to drive fear into your own soul that this place could become that way. But in a time when most of us have lost faith in every human institution, the true church stands as a bulwark, and, and I'm, I'm talking about the true church, the, the, not the false church, but the true church, those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, believe his word. Uh, it stands as a bulwark against the tides of paganism and corruption and all the things out there that we see that are on the rise. And it is necessary for that to continue for the Holy Spirit, I think, to rekindle the flame of the gospel in every generation. Church doesn't continue without the gospel. The two are necessary for each other. A church that gives up the gospel is not the church anymore. And they may have some great traditions. They may have some beautiful music. They may have some smiling people. There may be a lot of things there that, that are nice. But if the gospel's not there, it's not the church. I, I, I've been actually, uh, for a, a short period of time, uh, my wife and I visited a number of churches that uh, just... Part of it was out of curiosity. Part, part of it was uh, we didn't have a, a home church for about a month and a half. And, and I've been in some places like that, some, some that I thought, man, I really like the liturgy here. It's so beautiful. It's so, 
but it's dead. The people here, they, they don't know the Lord. And, and that, that's not a church. I don't recognize that as a church. I can't. And you walk in here, and immediately I, I sense people love the Lord here. There's the, the Spirit in me and the Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit, is, is, is doing something, something that we can't maybe even understand or explain completely. So I want to just be reminded, I want us to think about that as we go through this. Uh, we have the promise in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell will not overpower the true church. And again, again, in Romans 11, the assurance that God preserves a remnant according to his gracious choice. So the true church is never going to go away. Not going to happen. It doesn't mean that this building, we're not guaranteed that this place will always be true. I hate to break that to you. It's, it's not a promise that God's given us, but he has given us the promise that the church will continue that his people that believe in him will always continue. Both in the New Testament and in church history, we are, we are uh, confronted with examples of once faithful churches that have been infiltrated by false teaching and subsequently compromise has taken place. And we must not think that it couldn't happen here. Healthy plants need water and the healthy souls need to be nurtured regularly in the gospel message. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to go back to the basics a little bit, remind ourselves, why do we even come here? Why do we treat each other the way that we do? Why do we love each other? Why do we attend church? I think for a child growing up, that's an obvious question. Uh, but for those who have developed a habit, you, sometimes you just get into the habit, right? The Apostle Paul reminded his child in the faith, Timothy, to remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descended from David, according to my gospel. Christian author Jerry Bridges taught Christians the need to preach the gospel to themselves daily. Regularly reminding ourselves of God's grace for us is important for several reasons. Number one, it keeps us from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That's why we should remember the gospel. We tend to get prideful if we don't remember None of this was brought about by you. You didn't do anything to merit the grace that God's given you. A Christianity without the gospel reduces itself to a cold metric by which failure to meet a moral standing brings condemnation to the sinner. In this context, a priestly class trumpeting their own counterfeit virtue preys upon the sinner's guilty conscience to gain advantage for themselves. In truth, this state of affairs describes every religion devoid of the Christian gospel, and sadly, many churches also. In contrast, the true gospel assumes our inability to keep God's law while still possessing a clean conscience because of what Christ did on our behalf. Clean conscience, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me, even though I've sinned. And yet being forgiven. How, how, does, how do you sin and your conscience is clean? That, that's something that is unique to Christians who believe the true gospel. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Paul says, and salvation is not a result of works so that no man may boast. No pride, no guilt at the same time in the true gospel. We can't take credit, but yet we're not held responsible for our sins. Secondly, remembering the gospel prevents damning heresies from taking root. I have yet to discover a Christian cult that did not compromise on the gospel somewhere. So sometimes there are cults out there in which um, 
they, they have all kinds of sometimes quirky views, maybe we would think. that there, There's one over in Newburgh. I don't know if anyone's uh, con been confronted at the mall by the, the mother, some called the Mother God Cult, uh, the International Missionary Society. And, and, and they have some quirky views. Uh, on Song Hung, I think it's On Song Hung, if I'm pronouncing it right, is Jesus, and there's this, there's this female deity, and so there's some quirky views there. But it's easy to get hung up in those. At, at the core of it, though, because I've, I've met with these people a few times, it's a false gospel. It's not just that they have some weird views that are out of step with Christology or, or pneumatology or some of these other theological things. It, it's, it's that they actually believe we get there by works, somehow, if we get there at all. You can never be assured of it. Mormonism teaches that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. That's 2 Nephi 25-23. And if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then is grace sufficient for you. Moroni, chapter 10-32. The Watchtower Society tells people that to get one's name written in the book of life will depend upon one's works. That's how you do it. It literally says that in their literature. And then, of course, the World Mission Society, I think I called it the International Mission, the World Mission Society, the one I just described, uh, believes that when we receive the blood of Christ through the New Covenant Passover, we can be forgiven of our sins. It's in their literature on their website. It took me about three seconds to find it. Just, I just got through all the, 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 the ribbons and, and all the, the onion layers, go right to the heart of it. What, what are they teaching? That's what they're teaching. Does any of that sound to you like good news. Does that sound good? Good news. You can be forgiven of your sins after you do some things. If, after all you can do, maybe God will let you in. Maybe his face will smile on you and he won't frown on you anymore if you jump through these hoops. That doesn't sound like very good news to me. Gospel's good news. How, how is that good news? And of course, if you ask people from any of these cults and others that I haven't mentioned, if they can be assured that they are going to heaven, the answer is always the same, in my experience. No. They don't know for sure. And it would be prideful to think that they could know. Because it's all based on them. And this goes for other religions. This goes for Islam. This goes for, for all the religions without the true gospel. The third reason for reminding ourselves of the gospel is that we need the encouragement it brings. Okay? I want to emphasize that. That's the, the primary thing I want to bring to you this morning. We need the encouragement, even as believers who already know the gospel and understand the gospel, I need the gospel. I need to be encouraged by the gospel regularly. After establishing the universal sinfulness of all mankind and preaching the message of salvation, the Apostle Paul declares to the church at Rome Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exalt in hope of the glory of God. Romans 5. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 1, likewise commands Christians undergoing persecution, real persecution. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the solution. Personal trials, tribulation, sin, uh, things that are going on out there in the world that make us nervous, all, all of those stresses in life, this is the solution, ultimately. 
Remember, remember the gospel. Remember, you're undeserving. This is what God's given you. Look at all the blessings he's given you, but most specifically, his son and salvation in him. Do any of you this morning sense the burden of your own guilt before God? Does your spirit condemn you before him? Or perhaps Satan, the accuser, is suggesting the lie that God does not really care about you. Not really. We read that, we talk about it, but I mean, does he really? He's abandoned you, hasn't he? Has he abandoned your family? Maybe you're wondering if he's abandoned your country. Anyone feel like that? It's just left America, letting us kind of drift off into or go down into a pit. If he really loved you, why does he let good men like Keith Hamilton, why does he let them die before we would have wanted him to go? Why does he let wicked people impose tyranny upon us? Maybe we aren't worthy of his grace after all. Perhaps if we read scripture, prayed, and attended church, then he would receive us. Maybe that's the problem. We're just not doing enough. If we just, if, I hear this a lot, by the way, even from conservative circles. If we just did something more, if we, we all got back to church on Sunday, it's a very Bible Belt thing. I don't know if you hear as much up here, but I hear a lot of political sermons uh, in the South tend, tend to go this direction. If God's people, they just call upon his name again and they come to church, that's usually what it means, then God's going to do a revival. It's blaming us for the fact that there's no revival. And can you bear that weight? I can't bear that weight. These are all the kinds of questions that naturally arise during the course of life. And the answer to them is found in the message of the gospel. With these goals in mind, defeating pride, guarding doctrine, and encouraging our souls. Let us read from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. Let's, let's open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We'll start at verse 1. Galatians 1 verse 1 says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ, and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. We'll stop there for now. There's one simple truth that I want to impress upon your heart this morning. It's one you've heard a lot but we need to remember it and think about it, mull it over. Jesus died for you individually. He died for you. Think about that. God of the universe died for you. Yes, we must first realize we've broken God's law. We must repent. We must believe to receive the everlasting life. And as Christians, we know this. But don't, don't let your mind shift focus from Christ to your own heart this morning. Don't ask yourself if you've repented enough. Of course you haven't. You haven't repented enough. You ever think that you'll get there? I haven't repented enough. Did you think your salvation was based on your own ability to even repent? I want to read for you, reflect on these words. This is from the theologian Charles Spurgeon. Some of you saw, I posted this on social media this week. It is the Holy Spirit's role to always turn our eyes to Jesus and away from ourselves. But Satan's role is exactly the opposite. For he is constantly trying to make us think of ourselves rather than Christ. 
Satan insinuates your sins are too many to be forgiven, and you have no faith. You don't repent enough. You will never be able to endure to the end, and you don't have the joy of God's children. And your grasp on Jesus is weak and wavering. All these thoughts are about self, yet we will never find comfort or assurance by looking inside ourselves. The Holy Spirit turns our eyes away from self, telling us we are nothing, but that Christ is our all in all. Remember, it is not your hold on Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even your faith in Christ, although that is the means he uses. It is in Christ's blood, work, and worthiness. Therefore, don't look at your hand with which you are grasping Christ. Look to Christ. Don't look at your hope. Look to Jesus, the source of your hope. Don't look at your faith. Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We will never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our works, or our feelings. It is who Jesus is that gives us rest to our soul not who we are. Charles Spurgeon, I thought, he, I couldn't say it any better than he said it there. Salvation is wholly a work of God. Rest in the simple truth that he loves you. Consider it, be amazed by it. Perhaps you grew up in a family where your acceptance was rooted in your ability to please your parents. Somehow, maybe sports or some, some metric that they use, good, good grades, maybe. God is already pleased with his son. Matthew 3.17 declares this, And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Your position before God is not grounded in your performance, but in the performance of another, and what Jesus did for you. God knows all about your sin, your doubts, your struggles. He saw what your eyes looked at this week, and he heard what your mouth said. And he is still just as unmoved in his love for you is when you first came to know him. Nothing's changed in that relationship. And it's not because of anything you've done to make him love you, but because he loved his son and has given us a gift in his son. Listen to the words of Jesus. This is in John 17. He says this in prayer to his father. This is the words of Jesus. Father, I desire that they, meaning his disciples, Christians, this is us, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. And again in verse 24, I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. The love that God had for Jesus may be in us. So Jesus prayed to the Father. We didn't live the life Jesus did. Perfect. We didn't die and pay for our sins. Jesus paid for them. But he wants the love that God gives to him to us. So now we are adopted as his sons. We're brothers with Jesus. Look to those words from verse 3 to 4, again, that we just read in Galatians. Verses 3 and 4. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that we might, he might rescue us, from this present evil age. The Bible teaches that God the Father sent his only son into the world filled with sin, with darkness, corruption, in order to accomplish something bigger than you and me, something beyond anything we can imagine, something this temporal existence cannot handle. 
something Keith Hamilton has more knowledge of right now than we do, and, and, and all those who have gone to be with him. The Apostle Paul observed that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, Romans 8.18. Jesus said, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Brothers and sisters, we are being made alive together with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, we read Ephesians this morning. Made alive together with Christ, raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. And why? Why are all these things true? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 says this, so that in the ages to come he might show the, the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God the Father sent his son on a mission to this dirty, sinful world filled with rebellious enemies, that's us, before we knew him, in order to transform them into clean, righteous citizens of the kingdom. And not only that, to adopt us into his family, to call us friends, to welcome us to sit at his table and reap the blessings of a harvest we did nothing to labor for, to demonstrate his own attributes of grace and mercy through his work in us. That's the gospel. That's the Christian message. It is my personal tradition to read Old Christmas every December. Old Christmas is a compilation of five short stories written by Washington Irving. Some of you would recognize Washington Irving from uh, such stories as The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. So he was a Hudson Valley boy and uh, the first major American author really to gain international acclaim. Irving's purpose in Old Christmas, though, is to invite readers disenchanted with modern life to remember, and modern life, right, 1819, right, <laughs> modern life, um, <laughs> to, who are disenchanted with that, to uh, look back to a way that Christmas was celebrated in the countryside of old England, to remember something, something that they were starting to lose, that there was a distant memory of something better, right? Today, we just turn on the Hallmark Channel. Back then, they read Old Christmas by Washington Irving. And one of the things that was becoming increasingly difficult to grasp in Irving's time, and much less in our own time, is a sense of hierarchy, honor, and obligation. I want to read for you a short section from Old Christmas, and it's just describing the way Christmas used to be celebrated in the English countryside. Irving writes this, the squire went on, and the squire, so this is someone who's owns land, nobility, the squire went on to lament the deplorable decay of the games and amusements which were once prevalent at, at this season among the lower orders, and countenanced by the higher, when the old halls of castles and manor houses were thrown open at daylight, when the tables were covered with brawn and beef and humming ale, when the harp and the carol resounded all day long, and when rich and poor were alike welcome to enter and make merry. Our old games and local customs, said he, had a great effect in making the peasant fond of his home and the promotion of them by the gentry made him fond of his Lord. They made the times merrier and kinder and better. What Irving is describing is a time once a year when the wealthy landowners would open up their large estates and they would invite the poor to come and sit at their table. 
And the tenants who lived on the estate relied on the nobility for their own livelihood. So there was a social bond. There was a relationship here. They, they depended on each other. Being invited to the master's home was not in payment for any product, though, or service. It wasn't like he owed them to come to his, his house and enjoy the benefits of his food and sitting at his table. He didn't owe them that. It was undeserving. It wasn't earned. It was simply a demonstration of the affection that the landowner had for those under his care and protection. And this was a great honor. And, and with it came a responsibility to respect the nobility's position and property as an undeserving guest. How much more of an honor is it for we poor sinners who were once enemies of the master and totally dependent on his grace and mercy for us to be seated in heavenly places and have mansions waiting for us built by the hands of the carpenter from Galilee. We didn't do anything. We didn't build them. We owe nothing. And that he swings open the doors and says, come in. The, food's, the table's prepared. Food is waiting for you. Fire's warm. And we're out in the cold. <laughs> bitterly freezing, not deserving any of this. We didn't pay any fee when we walked in. Our names uh, are, are already, though, on the register. Does that sound like good news? How about that? In, in contrast to what we read from the Mormons and the Jehovah's how this uh, sounds like a better deal to me. This sounds like good news. And that's what euangelion, the Greek word for gospel, that's what it literally means. It means good news. So the true gospel is what the word implies. It's good news. It's, it's not, well, if you do this for the master, he might let you in. No, the doors are already open. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that we, he might rescue us from this present evil age. Jesus paid the penalty of the law you broke by giving his own innocent life in return for your guilty one. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And, in, and, and the result is that God doesn't look at you and see sinful rebels anymore. He sees the righteousness of his son. Instead of a burning lake of fire to pay for your sin, you escape what the rest of humanity is heading toward, and you didn't do anything to deserve it. That's good news. But there's a problem we can so easily forget this simple truth. I mean, we remember it intellectually, I'm talking about myself here too, but we can demonstrate we don't really believe it in its entirety. It sounds too good to be true. Surely there must be something that we need to contribute in order to gain this, some kind of payment, something, even if it's a small thing, we have to, there's something we gotta do, right? That's how the rest of the world works. He's not just going to let us waltz into his mansion on Christmas without us doing something in return for him. Let's turn to verse 6 in Galatians chapter 1. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, and so say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. 
For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man nor I was, was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. The situation in Galatia, Paul's writing to this region, we, we would know it as uh, the, maybe the eastern end of Turkey, what's today Turkey. The situation in the churches there was very dire at this point. And chapter 2, verse 4, describes the situation, the parallel situation a little more, that there were false brethren, Paul says, who subversively persuaded Christians to add a demand to keep the Mosaic law to the gospel message. So, yeah, we believe the gospel. We can articulate the gospel. It's God's grace through faith. And if you really believe that, though, this is what you also have to do. You have to keep the Mosaic law. That's what was going on. And according to one scholar, the term here that Paul uses in chapter 2-4 to, to call the false brethren, the, the, he refers to them as pseudodelphos. And it designates traitors within a city who um, allowed the enemy to sneak into the city and survey its defenses. That's a very strong term that Paul is using, saying these guys aren't your friends. They're enemies within your own churches that are coming in, and they're introducing a false gospel, a virus, if you will into your body. The Apostle Paul had previous experience with these false teachers. In chapter 2, verse 5 states, he did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain. How so? Well, he supported Titus's refusal to receive the sign of the Mosaic Covenant in circumcision, according to verse 3 of chapter 2. Interestingly, in Acts chapter 16, we find that Paul personally circumcised Timothy in order to avoid unnecessarily offending the Jews. Yet here in Galatians, Paul is encouraging the refusal to get circumcised. So what's up with that? At one point, Paul says, yep, you need to get circumcised, Timothy. Avoid offending the Jews. At another point, he says, we're not going to yield to you for one hour. Do not get circumcised. Why the switch? Why the difference? I'll tell you why. Because the false teachers, also known as the Judaizers, made circumcision a gospel issue. They gave the impression that one could not be a true Christian unless they successfully kept the law. Paul called this, in chapter 1, verse 6, a different gospel. The term denotes a completely different message, not to be confused with a genuine article. He further clarifies in verse 7 that it is not another gospel. And there's there's a different Greek word used here. Um, and, and what he's, he's trying to say that um, it's, it's, the Judaizers aren't preaching anything similar to the true gospel. Nothing. It's not, it's not even in the same category. And, and they should not be confused by it. It, it shouldn't be something that they, they look at. There, there should be a clear delineation there. The true gospel, false gospel. So this is, this is a different gospel, and there is no other gospel. In fact, they've distorted the true message, Paul says, beyond recognition, and this gospel will not save them. It will curse them. Paul uses the word ananthema, curse them. That's a pretty big deal. Only adding a little bitty thing. We just need to be circumcised. You can keep the law. And it's the difference between heaven and hell, life and death, true and false. One of the things I've learned over the last few years is how subtle this kind of false teaching can be. 
And it's shocking to realize that the vast majority of what, call, what calls itself today evangelicalism in this country accommodates a gospel that curses. The prosperity gospel connects the blessings of Christianity, including forgiveness, to the sincerity of one's faith. If you are not enjoying a good life, it's because something is lacking in you. You are always trying to achieve God's favor through sacrificially giving and pious displays. Will a good father give his son a snake, though, who asks for a fish? According to the prosperity gospel, he will if the son isn't sincere enough. That's the prosperity gospel. There's another false gospel, and I believe right now, it doesn't come as a surprise to some of you, it's a greater threat, and that's the social justice gospel because of how pervasive it is. I cannot tell you the amount of popular preachers today who tell their congregations, their sheep, that if they preach salvation by grace through faith, that is just a half gospel or part of the gospel. It's not the whole gospel. We must pursue social justice if we are to embrace the whole gospel. That's the other part of the gospel, apparently. There are even preachers who call this so-called second part of the gospel the gospel of justice. The term, I didn't make that up. Not to be confused, of course, with the gospel of grace, which is what Paul's talking about, and it's the only true gospel and the one that we're talking about this morning. They tie heavy burdens around the necks of their followers and condemn them to everlasting punishment if they fail this second part of the gospel. Then there are the good old-fashioned legalists who preach that in order to maintain, maintenance language, okay, maintain one's standing before God, they need to keep the law. Usually this law includes such things as abstaining from certain taboo vices, granting considerable control to church leaders, and keeping up a good public image. And if you do those things, then you're maintaining the, the at least we will all come together and affirm that you are a true Christian. Does any of that sound like good news to you? Nah, doesn't sound like good news to me either. The Apostle Paul has something to say about these false gospels in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Why don't you turn there? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, he says this, this is strong. He says, you foolish Galatians. I think of Mr. T all of a sudden. For You fools, right? I pity you. You foolish Galatians. Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being protected or perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? He continues, verse 22, 21 and 22, he says this, For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith." You understand what Paul is saying here? First, he's saying it's okay to be sarcastic every now and then. I just want you all to know that. It's not unchristian. Secondly, and more importantly, there is no life to be found in the law. 
You, you're trying to get something. You're trying to get water from a stone. You fool. <laughs> you're not going to, there's no water in it. You can't get grace from the law. It's not going to happen. They're two completely different things. A propensity to keep God's law is the result of salvation, not the cause of salvation. It is the fruit of salvation, not the root. Or as one pastor told me, it is like a GPS. It can tell you when you're off track, but it is not a gas pedal. It cannot save you or motivate your Christian life. This is why Christians who hear law all the time don't actually, they can, they can modify their behavior, but it doesn't change their heart. Their sin might go underground, but it's still there. And many pastors throughout this country try to motivate their congregations that way. Live a holy life. Come to church. Read your Bible. Because it says so. It says to do it. Yeah, it is a command. We need to know it's a command. Yes, we need, we need to do the things that God has commanded us. It's true. It's not the motive, though. Look to Christ. Look what he did. Look what he did for you. You understand what he did for you. How the, the mansion of the master is swung open and you get to be at the table. That would, that would motivate anyone to love the master. Is it possible, here's a question, for Christians to be temporarily compromised by a false teaching that corrupts the gospel with requirements of the law? The answer is yes. Throughout the entire book of Galatians, Paul argues against those in the church who were tempted to adopt this false teaching. And in chapter 2, verses 11 through 4, Paul tells us that the apostle Peter, Cephas is, is what your translation probably says, stood condemned and engaged in hypocrisy because he was not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And the term for condemned conveys the idea of guilt here. Okay, So it's a different word. He says the false teachers are anathema. They're accursed, very strong. He doesn't say that about Peter. He doesn't say he's accursed. What he says is he's guilty. He's guilty before God. And, and why would he be guilty? He didn't actually trust in the false gospel himself. Uh, he wasn't a false teacher but he was guilty of in giving the impression that there really wasn't any difference between what the Judaizers were teaching and the true gospel. He didn't make a wall between the truth and the lies. That's why he was compromised. That's why he was condemned. He was guilty. In uh, chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, Paul exposes the motives of the false teachers as attempting to make a good showing in the flesh and boast instead of bearing one another's burdens. There's a contrast in the final chapter. We should bear one another's burdens. That's not what they do. They heap burdens on people. They condemn you. You, you leave at you, you're beaten up because you didn't achieve, because you never will. <laughs> and, and, and you're made to feel that unless you do, you're not worthy of God's love. He's frowning on you somehow. I do want to ask you briefly this morning if you see any of these traits in you. Okay? Again, it's not to condemn you. This is, it's dangerous for me to even ask this after preaching all this grace. I don't want you to... This is just an assessment. It's GPS, okay? It's not gas pedal. Do you harbor an unwillingness to forgive others the way Christ forgave you? Do you question the salvation of others because they fail to keep the law? Do you question your own salvation because you fail to keep the law? Do you try to gain God's forgiveness by keeping the law? Do you doubt his forgiveness when you fail to keep the law? 
If any of this describes you this morning, then I have gospel for you, good news for you. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. A person, Paul says, is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. And guess what? Scripture even teaches that our faith is a gift from God. So it's not like you have to have perfect faith. No one does. That's even a gift that God's given you. We are blessed here to enjoy the love of God and the love of one another. And in this uncertain world, let us not look to ourselves and the changing circumstances that are around us. And I realize for some of you, this hits closer to home than for others. Some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you don't, you're afraid of what's going to happen in the future. I think we all have an uncertainty. And we can't let those things be the metrics by which that we use to determine our own joy and our own decisions. We must look first and foremost, being aware of those things, at the purposes of God in history and how we fit into them. And we fit into them because Christ loves us, because we are a gift from the Father to the Son, and then the Son perfects us and gives us back to the Father. And we are a trophy of His grace. We, God looks at us, and He sees His Son. He sees a work that He's done, and He gets to show the whole entire world, this is my grace, this is my mercy, this is who I am, this is what I've done. Who else could do this? Who else could take rubbish and, and then make it pure as gold? And that's what God does. And we have to remember that, that that's, that's, the, how we, that's our place, and it's a, it's a privileged place. It's not a bad word, by the way. Privilege is a good thing. God gives it to us. And that, that is something that is undeserved, unmerited, and we have anyway. I'll, I'll repeat for you the words from the song uh, we just sang here. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Not our lives. What more could we give? He gave his life. Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning and the simplicity of the gospel message, Lord. We know how easy it is to forget. I know for me, Lord, how easy it is for me to get into a works mentality and thinking that you won't approve of me unless I do something for you. And it's already been done in Jesus, Lord. There's nothing left for me to do. It's 100% paid for. All my sin, all my guilt. And Lord, I thank you for the believers that you've gathered here, whom Jesus has also redeemed. I pray, God, that we would remember this grace, even as we go forward into 2022, and we, we, we in, in uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen with the political situation and the social situation and maybe trials in our own lives that we all have, we know one thing's for certain and is unmovable, and that is your love for us, Lord, because... Christ Jesus does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you for that truth, Lord. We thank you for the body of believers that comes together because of this. We love each other because of this. And there's security here because of this. In Jesus' name, amen. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.